It's good to have you with us this morning, and uh, as you can see, uh, we have quite a bit of people out with either sickness or traveling for the holidays, and so, um, but we're glad that you're here, and uh, thankful that you've been able to join us this morning at Glenlock. Um, a few announcements as, you get, as we get started, one being that as you can see, uh, Advent is here, so this is the first Sunday in, uh, in Advent, and so today we're going to celebrate the hope that we have in Christ, and um, as Advent goes along, we'll light the Advent candles each week, uh, representing um, each topic of Advent, hope, peace, love, and joy, and so this is one of my favorite times of the year, um, that we get to celebrate just the, the, the coming of Christ and the incarnation, and then the celebration that he's going to return one day and take his people to be with him for eternity. So, um, just a, a few announcements this morning. One being that One Night in Bethlehem is next Sunday. Okay, so next Sunday, December the 4th, is the first night of One Night in Bethlehem, and then we'll do one Saturday, December the 10th. And so, with that being said, there is a work day today at 4 o'clock down at One Night in Bethlehem. For anybody who may be able to come and help kind of get things in order, um, that's going to be at 4 o'clock today. And so any students who are interested, who usually come on Sunday nights to our worship service, we're going to do that tonight for our, for our service. So if you're a student, come at 4 o'clock, um, help with the setup and everything for One Night in Bethlehem. That's what we're going to be doing as a group um, tonight. Instead of having our normal service, we're going to come here at 4 o'clock and we're going to kind of help prepare for uh, One Night in Bethlehem. That's also what our adults will be doing. There won't be an adult Bible study. We're going to be down there helping um, with One Night in Bethlehem. But our children will be having choir practice tonight at 6 because in a couple of weeks, December the 11th, they are performing their Christmas celebration. Um, So adult choir at 5 also. Yes, okay. So adult choir will meet at 5. But children will have kids choir at 6. Um, because they're performing on December the 11th. So, a couple of other things happening. Um, The Flat Rock Christmas service will be uh, Wednesday, December 14th. Um, If you are interested in that, that's at 6 o'clock. And uh, our student schedule always gets super crazy this time of the year, so we have made cards with our schedule for December on them. So if you're if you have a student in our student ministry, grab one of those on your way out. Um, it kind of has all the stuff that we're doing in December, just so you, we don't have to rely on us to remind you. You'll have that card with you um, at all times. So there are several other things happening, Christmas Eve candlelight service, Christmas caroling, but we'll announce those closer to um, time um, just because there's so much going on. But we do want to take uh, time this morning just to remember um, just the hope that we have in Christ this season. And so as we get started, I believe Mr. Jimmy Horn is going to come and uh, he is going to read for us and pray for our call to worship this morning. Morning. Everybody still at the dinner table. I don't see as many as usually here. A lot of more traveling there. Good to see y'all this morning. Going to start off in the, well, I'm going to end up too, I guess, in Mark chapter 4. Uh, starting off on first and second 
verses. Then I'm going to switch over to 30, the 33rd verses. You'll see why. Uh, and again, he began, let me put this on. Where's these at? You can tell I'm prepared here. And again, he began to teach by the sea, and a great multitude was gathered to him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole multitude was in the land facing the sea. Y'all got this picture? Big multitude. Jesus said, I better get in the sea. So he faced them. Then he taught them many things by parables. He taught them through parables because they could understand it. Everybody could understand it. You know, and uh, he knew that. Anyway, verse 33. And with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were uh, able to hear it. But without a parable, he did not speak to them. And when they were uh, alone, he explained all things to his disciples. On the, on the same day, when evening came, he said to them, Let us cross over to the other side. Now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat, as he was, and other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so much that it was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he arose, he rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was great calm. Uh, a couple of words here I want to kind of zero in on that spoke to me, and the word peace and the word calm. Not calm, but a great calm, you know. And uh, I thought about the, uh, about the disciples. I know this is a different kind of storm, but uh, the storms that they would go through in their life, you know, personal life, what they would be facing uh, the rest of their lives and being kind of selfish I thought well what about us what are we going to be facing we have storms of life coming to us you know that's my way of thinking you know and they are some are big some are not so big but there's still storms and uh, we need the peace and we need we need the calm uh, uh, I, I call these storms of life you know, if, if I'm presenting myself well enough to, that you understand that. And there's some things that, uh, I mean, I won't name the things that we can go through, that we will go through and have gone through uh, storms of life, but you're going to go through some, you know. And uh, it's going to be tough. But we have somebody that we can talk to. We can call God on God any time of the day and night, 365 days a year, he's there, you know. Wake up 2 o'clock in the morning, he's there. And if we have storms, we talk to him any day, any time. Also, uh, he brings us uh, the peace that we need. You know, the peace that uh, I just read to you a while ago. And he brings calm to us. I mean, you think about some storms that you've gone through in your life. 
your family's life, you know. Some of them are pretty rough, you know. But God's there. He's the one that we talk to. Uh, through him we get the peace, we get the great calm. And through his word and through prayer, uh, that's where that comes from. I hope I explained myself well enough. Anyway, let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you, God, for this day and the blessings of life. I thank you, Father, for uh, the peace that you give us, the hope that we have in this life, that, uh, Lord, that you, uh, you sent your Son to die for my sins and the sins of the world. And, God, we trust in him. We know that we'll be in heaven with you. Uh, I pray for everybody here today, Lord, that you'd be with them, that you'd guide all of us and uh, direct us in the way we need to go and, and to share your love and share your word with others, Lord. Pray for those that are traveling, that you'd be with them, give them safe travel, Lord. And we love you and we thank you for your, everything that you do for us, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. didn't use this mic last week. Can y'all tell? Good morning. Y'all go ahead and stand up with me this morning. It's Advent season. You know what that means? Christmas songs. So let's begin worship this morning with O Come, O Come, Emmanuel.
Sam, we're going to sing together again. Children, will you come to the front for me? Kiddos, come see me up front. All right, so Christmas is one of my favorite times of year for lots and lots of different reasons. But one reason that I think Christmas is so cool is this right here, okay? So this is called our Advent wreath. And we say Advent, we have four different Advents, okay? And we celebrate it each Sunday leading up till Christmas. And so when you look at the wreath, what's something you notice? What do we see? Do we see any colors? Green, okay? So it's surrounded in green, right? You know what's cool about an evergreen tree? It's evergreen. What's that mean? It's always green. So it reminds us, this evergreen reminds us that God is always with us. And Jesus is, um, his love is always there. It never changes. It never fades. All the grass may turn brown and the trees. But just like the evergreen trees, God's love never fails us. What else do you notice about the wreath? It has 
has candles in it, and it's inside it, right? Because does the wreath break anywhere? Mm-mm, it's ever going just like God's promises to us. So now let's talk about these candles. What do we notice about the candles? Joseph in the middle. So each purple tells a different story. Okay, so this morning, did you hear how all that music was kind of a little bit scary sounding? Did y'all kind of notice that? It's a little eerie, right? Like, it's not like the bright, joyful stuff, like Joy to the World, right? Or it's not like a way in the mangers. It's kind of like, what child is this? And, and that song the choir sang, it was talking about somebody, people bringing somebody a gift, right? And so the first purple candle that we get to light this morning, it's called the prophecy candle. And it, it's, it's like this music kind of sounded. It's about all the things that people were expecting to happen, but they weren't sure yet. Because they knew that, you know, this, this teenage girl is supposed to be carrying a baby, but they're like, is that true? So there's kind of a lot of uncertainty. But the Bible had said it was, that it, it was coming, that Jesus was coming, and that he was going to be born in a manger. So the wise men, they said, well, we better start traveling to see him. So that's what this first morning is about, is, is who was this child? And, and why were these people coming to see him? And that's kind of why the music sounds like that, too, because our first candle is the candle of prophecy. So what we, we thought was coming, but everybody was a little unsure about it, okay? They just weren't, weren't quite sure yet. Um, and so that is our first candle of Christmas. But it's still true that this circle, we knew the promises were going to be fulfilled, so we'll talk about that each week, okay? Isn't that cool? How so much story can be in one little wreath with candles. So cool. All right, let's pray. You all pray with me? Dear gracious Heavenly Father, God, Lord, thank you so much just for Christmas and the beautiful season, God. Lord, thank you for these wonderful children standing in front of me, God. Lord, may we all have a childlike faith this Christmas, Lord. And God, as we uh, see these children praying in front of you this morning, God, Lord, may we be reminded that just as the Bible promised that Jesus was coming, Lord, that these children are, are the hope of the world for us too, God. Or they are the hope of our future. And so may we be a church that continues to um, just fill in to our children and pour into them and pray over them, God, and pray over the, the workers who are leading them, God, Lord, Sarah Beth and Bryson and their ministry, God. So, Lord, will you just use um, Sarah Beth and Bryson in a mighty way? We put Bryson this morning as he teaches us as well, God. Um, and will you just remind us this Christmas that um, every time we see green around us, God, that it's your promise being fulfilled, and you're never changing, and you always love us, God, and may we always love other people. In Jesus' name I pray, and everybody said, amen. Good job. All right, Sarah Beth's waiting in the back real. As the children leave, if you'll turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, um, feels weird still not to say turn to Luke, um, and there's a lot of messages probably being preached in Luke this morning, if I had to guess, um, because that's where much of the, the story of Jesus' birth takes place um, in the first couple of chapters of Luke, um, but I've determined, last year I was, I, I, I preached this Sunday in Advent, and I also preached the last Sunday in Advent last year, and this year 
as, as planned right now, just this one, and I've determined that I do, I'm not very good at picking Christmassy texts. Um, you know, many people ex- have an expectation of uh, which text will be preached for a Christmas message and an Advent message, and I do a poor job of picking those in particular. And a lot of times I bite off way more than I can chew. Um, because if you know anything about Romans 8, uh, many people consider it the greatest chapter in the Bible. Um, theologically, it is very deep. And what we're going to do is we're going to cover a lot of it. But what I want us to see this morning, and the reason I'm putting this out there um, at the very beginning, is I I want us to to look at the way that that Paul moves the argument that he's going to make in this chapter. And I just want us to take a a higher view of it so we can look down and kind of see the truths that are in it. Because as we celebrate Advent, we look at both the, the, the coming of Christ and then the expected return. Right? Those are both things that we look at, and in those we look at hope and peace and love and joy. And this morning we get to look at hope. And so my, my hope in this message right, is to bring about to you that, that those truths can and will sustain you as we live between the two comings of Christ. Um, I find it increasingly difficult at times right, to find hope at times. There's a lot of people right now during this season that struggle with, with, with hope. And so this morning, I want us to look at this passage in Romans 8, and my, my prayer is that we'll see the hope that is found there. So just to begin, I just want to say a few months ago, I was interviewed by somebody writing a devotion for teenagers. And they were asking me some questions about um, what some things that they should include in it and, and, and a direction and that kind of thing. And we, we got to the, a, a final question, and this is what's kind of spurred me in the past couple of weeks towards this passage of Scripture. We got to a final question, and the question was, what is the greatest struggle young people are facing in their lives this, at this point in terms of their, their walk with Christ? And I answered, after a few things came to mind, I eventually answered that, they, that their identity it seems as if with the young people that I come in contact with, a lot of the times there is not a, there's not a strong identity that they can go back to in their Christian walk. Um, and I, I, I think that this not only plagues young people, but it also affects Christians across the board, is oftentimes we miss the weight and the, the anchor of our identity, and we begin to drift in other areas of life because we don't have that anchor that we return to. So this morning, I want us to see the hope and the help that comes from our understanding of our identity in Christ. And I want to see the way that Romans 8 speaks to that. So, as we begin, let's go together um, to the Word of God. Romans chapter 8, we're going to read verses 12 through 30. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. It is not to the flesh to live according to it, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put, to deed, you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. 
Now, if we are God's children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we, we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they have already have? But if we hope for what we do not ha- yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you just give us clarity this morning, Father, that you would show us the truth of your word, Lord, that you would create in us a longing and a desire, Lord, just to worship and glorify you with with all that we have and with all that we are, Lord. And um, Lord, I just pray that you would lead uh, me this morning, Lord. Um, you know my heart, Lord, and I pray that you would just um, that you would speak through me in a in a way that's clear and and truthful, Lord. And uh, Lord, I just I pray that we would not only just hear and learn, but Lord, that we would allow your word to transform our lives through the power of your Spirit. In your name, we pray. Amen. Just a few things to mention as we move in. I just I want to really quickly read to you Romans 1.7. It kind of gives us the context for the entire book um, and who it's written to. And this is, what, this is what Paul says. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. I want to I wanna move our hearts in that direction because there's going to be much that we learn about this morning that's going to be, I hope, so invigorating and so, um, and so uplifting to you. I don't want you to be assuming that this is spoken to some type of special Christian. Right? A lot of people read chapter 8 of Romans and they begin to think, right, that, man, that's great for whoever that appeals to or whoever, you know, whoever that... Um, that is pointing to, but it can't be me. It has to be somebody at a, at a different level than I am or a different place than I am. That's, that's for those really, really special Christians. But Paul says right here that his letter that he is writing is to all in the church in Rome who have been called according to his purpose. And so what we look at this morning is not instructions. It's not 
um, a gift to just simply those who are elevated to a certain status of Christianity, but it is a gift given to all who are his. And you need to, you need, we need to enter into this time believing that and knowing that because there's going to be much here that I want you to, to personally understand and to know. And so I want us to begin by saying this is to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. This is to all of us, this truth. So this whole entire book leading up to this point has talked a lot about, um, it's talked a, lot about a lot of things. Many people call the book of Romans just a, basically an explanation of the gospel that Paul gave to the, to the church in Rome, to a predominantly Gentile church, but there was also at least a small sect of Jewish converts to Christianity that were, that were in Rome. And Paul begins in, in, in chapter 8 to, to talk about the, the work of the Holy Spirit. And in verse 9, he says, You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And so there's this idea of belonging to God through the Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit. And so as we move into verses 12 through 30, I have three headings that I want us to come around that, are, that, that, that Paul brings to light here in, the, in, in the, the rest of these verses. And the first one is this. We have a new identity as God's children. We have a new identity as God's children. Paul introduces in verses 14 and 15 a concept that has not yet been spoken about in this entire letter. And that is the Christian's standing as a child of God. I want you to think about that for a second. There's, there's many times where we begin to identify ourselves. And people ask, who are you? Right? And, and, and many times we answer that in, you know, I, I go to Glenlock Baptist Church or... I'm a Baptist, or I'm a believer, or, or, or any of those different things. But what we need to understand is that when we look at Romans 8, when we look at the Bible in the whole, one of the greatest identifying things that we can say about ourselves is that I am a child of God. There's an intimacy that I think we often miss as, as Christians, as believers, that God has gifted us with. And so Paul comes into Romans chapter 8 and he, he, he goes into this, to this explanation of the work of the Spirit, right? God, Paul at this point is considered the, is considered the believer as called by God. He's considered him justified. He's considered him belonging to God. But here for the first time, he brings to the forefront this identifying factor that you are all of those things, but you are also his child. He's beginning to open the eyes of the, the Roman people to the fact that, that there's an intimacy of relationship that the Father offers them as believers, and that is of a child. So in verse 15, Paul describes how it is, right, that those who he's already said have been in rebellion against God, those he's said have fallen short of the glory of God, those he said are you know, in and of themselves, lost without hope. All of those things that he's mentioned about these people so far, he remedies in chapter 8, verse 15, by saying, the only way that you became sons of God is that the Spirit of God is a spirit of adoption. God has adopted you into his family. The Spirit that you've been given, he says, has not made you slaves, 
so that you live in fear. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by this we cry, Abba, Father. Paul makes it clear that believers have become the children of God because God has brought them into the family through the process of adoption. Faith in Jesus Christ and the giving of the Holy Spirit doesn't just bring you into a club or a group. I believe, you know, a lot of the times I have questioned or, or, or spoken about the church or I've spoken about my walk and I say, you know, it's great to have a group of people that I can just hang, you know, I can be a part of. I remember being a teenager and thinking through the process of going to church. You know, yeah, I have a church, you know, I have a church that I go to and there's people who are there and I have a God who loves me and all those kind of things. But when God brings us into relationship with himself, he's not, you're not joining a, a club. You're not, you're not joining a, a group. You are being adopted and into a, a family, an eternal family with God as your father. And so many times I think we get stuck in this idea of, of, of our Christian walk as being far too systematic and not enough filial, right? There's a, there's a family aspect of this that we, that we don't need to miss. And so when we think about and explain this idea of this adoption, I want us to really quickly understand what it would have meant for the Romans, all right? Because we have our own context of adoption, right? We have our own context of what adoption means, and there's, there's, there's a concept in Rome that would have been a little bit different. And so when we think about who Paul is speaking to, and we think about this, this idea that he's, he's bringing about, he was likely speaking to poor, lowly people who were at the bottom of the societal barrel in most of the cases. The church in Rome would not have been celebrated at this point. There would have been a lot of pushback against those who were in this church. There would have been persecution starting to beginning to happen against the church in Rome. So many of the people who he's speaking to would have been considered as outliers to the rest of society. F.F. F. Bruce explains this type of adoption in Rome as this. He says, in the Roman world of the first century, an adopted son was deliberately chosen by his adoptive father to perpetuate his name and to inherit his estate. He was in no way inferior in status to a son born in the ordinary course of nature and might well enjoy the father's affection more fully and reproduce the father's character more worthily. And so when we think about this idea of adoption in Rome, we think about this idea that Paul's bringing to these Roman citizens, they begin to think in their mind, adoption? Adoptions for those who are considered worthy of it. Right, the adoptions for those who have been chosen by someone, how could that ever apply to me? And you may think that for yourselves at times. How could, why would God ever choose right, to bring me into his family? In this, in this way of adoption, any ties to the former life, any debt that was formerly owed, any baggage that that child would have brought with them was left behind and once the adoption took place the child was a new person with a new family family and a new future one life ended and one life began 
And so when you think about what Paul is saying to these Roman Christians, he is letting them know God has adopted you into his family. So what you once were no longer exists, and who you are now is for eternity. God has made you his child. And so that debt that you owed because of your sin, that's forgiven. That baggage that you had no longer controls you. The sin that you once were in no longer has power over you. God's love has overpowered your former way of life and has brought you into a new family. And one in which he is father. And so as Paul describes the spirit of adoption, he's putting on full display the reality is that this adoption is the outworking of the love of God. It is the overpouring of the love of God. John says it in 1 John uh, chapter 3. He says, what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. There's an inherent misunderstanding of the gospel when we begin to lose God's love in our understanding of it. I think sometimes we get so fixated on the details, and I'm not saying it's bad to look at the details, right? I, 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 please don't, I'm in seminary for a reason. I want to learn the details. But the details are not an, an escape from understanding the overarching idea is that God's love is the, is the outpouring of adoption. It, it, God's love is, the, is what drives salvation. And so we can get into the details, but the details have to be saturated at all times with God's love. And so for me and for you, I don't want us to miss God's love in the process of understanding our salvation. I don't want us to miss what being able to call ourselves a child of God truly means. Because I believe that that is, our, that is the identity that will sustain us. I talked to our students a few weeks ago, and, and, I, and I asked them the question. I said, I want you to go to your, the worst time in your life. I want you to think about the, the most difficult circumstance you've been in or the, the hardest thing that you've gone through. That's why I love what, um, what we read this morning in the call to worship. I want, you to, I want you to go to that place, and I want you to think, does your understanding of God in that moment, is it a help to you? Because if it's not, you have too small a view of who God is. We get so caught up in, in God affecting these little areas of life when in reality, we need to understand that God has power and authority in every aspect of life. Even in the deepest, darkest, nastiest places that we've been, the love of God reaches down into those places, pulls us out and says, you are a child of God. This is why Paul makes it clear. It says, the spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live again in fear. The work of the spirit is a work that leads through affection, not through domination. When I think about this, and my, any students that are in here are going to roll their eyes, because I'm about to talk about my trip to Zimbabwe. And uh, they've heard that, I mean, a million times in five years. But I, I want to, for a moment, to describe to you kind of what 
what I mean by this adoption and this leading by affection. So we spent 10 days in Zimbabwe just completely and utterly connected to this community. Right? We, we ate with them, we celebrated with them, we worshipped with them, we, 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 we housed with them, we worked with them, we did all of these things with them. In 10 days, right, in Zimbabwe, we met entire families. We celebrated special occasions. We had a cookout. We did ministry together. Brooke even went and helped birth some, some Zimbabwe babies. You should ask her about that story because she, don't tell her I said that. But also within those 10 days, I began to find myself becoming more and more like the people of that village. Just for a couple of examples, one, their answer to how are you, which mine is incorrectly, I'm good. Theirs is fine, how are you? And day two and day three and day four, I find myself more and more saying, fine, how are you? When, they, when somebody brought you something to eat, Right, You would say thank you by clapping twice and then saying thank you. So it would be like, thank you. And little did you know, I went to the, the airport on the way home and got a slice of pizza and told the guy, thank you. And he looked at me like I was crazy. <laughs> and as we left 10 days later, I found myself longing to stay with these people. I felt a deep connection with them that we had we had spent with them, and as I thought about it, for those 10 days, they had adopted us. And the driving force behind all of my actions and all of that was the simple truth that those people loved us like family, and the result of that is that we loved them too. And we weren't forced to like them. We weren't forced to begin to look like them. We did so because the very character of who they were produced that in us. And I think it would have been different if they would have kidnapped us, right? I don't think I would have began to look like them and act like them and talk like them if they would have forced us into submission in such a way. But it was through the affection that they gave us that we began to look and act more like they were. And so when we think about this spirit of adoption that comes within our lives, it is a guide. It, is, it, it leads us through affection. It shows us so much of God's love and mercy and grace that it begins to transform the way that we think and the way that we act and the way that we live because we know that God so loves us and he sent his spirit to guide us and it's a spirit of adoption. And so I want to serve God in this way. This confirmation of our identity produces in us characteristics of our Father. My hope in this story is that you'll discover that God works in a way in which he overwhelms you with grace and he overpowers you with mercy. Slavery is systematic and it's forced and it's fear-inducing and it's temporary. But adoption, sonship, is relational and it's gifted and it produces gratefulness and it's eternal. And so when you think about what your identity as a child of God is, does it sustain you? Does it look at God as Father? And so these 
characteristics that come out of that. I'm going to go through these really quickly because I spent too much time already. He talks about them, right? He says that those who have been adopted by God are deeply loved by God. The spirit of adoption leads us to view God as Father. That's what it means. It says it allows us to cry out to God, Abba, Father. Jesus cried out to God in this way in Mark 14 when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He cried out and he said, Abba, Father. And he has given us the ability to do that through the adoption into sonship. Those who have been adopted by God desire to serve God. This is what he says in verses 12 and 13. He says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. And so what does that mean for us? That means that it is the driving force of the Spirit to conform us into the image of Christ. Those adopted by God are confirmed by God. Notice what he says in verse um, 16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. When you begin to question your identity as God's child, the Spirit of God reminds you of who you are. That may be by confirmation or it may be by conviction, but either way, God looks down and through the Spirit, he reminds you of your identity. Those adopted by God are heirs with Christ. That's what he says in verse 17. If we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If we indeed share in his sufferings, in order that we also may share in his glory. And so your identity that you've been given is as God's child. Don't lose sight of the truth of that and the beauty of it. God has adopted you into his family if you have come to faith in Jesus Christ. Secondly, there's an incomparable hope for God's children. An incomparable hope for God's children. Now that Paul has established the work of the Spirit as being a constant reminder of a believer's new identity, he expands on his final point of our identity as co-heirs. And one marker of being a co-heir with Christ is that there is suffering and then there's glory. There's suffering and then there's glory. Those who are children of God will not truly experience the fullness of that identity until they're with the Lord fully. The reason that Paul goes into this, because he understands this as well as anyone else, Paul understands that Christians in Rome will endure suffering in this life because he endured suffering. If you look at 1 Corinthians 11, it gives this explanation of all the things that Paul's went through. He says, five times I've received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes last one. Three times I've been beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of the, my anxiety for all the churches. What a testimony that Paul has of, of the things that he's gone through, of the, of the difficulty that he's endured. And Paul writes all this because he knows, and what he knows is that hardship in this life is inevitable. But we must answer the question, why? Why does hardship take place? And the short answer for that is sin. If you'll notice in the verses of 20, 21, and 22, he talks a lot about creation 
He says in verse 20 that creation was subjected to frustration. He says in verse 21 that creation is in bondage to decay. In verse 22 that creation groans as in the pains of childbirth. What does all this mean? It means that sin not only affects man, but it has affected creation as a whole. Genesis chapter 3, I'm not going to read it, but it talks about that there, that, that God had, had put a burden on the land because of the sin of man. The other day I was, <laughs> the other day I was watching, I walked in and Charlie was watching Lion King. And uh, just a warning, there's two references to Disney movies in this sermon. Um, some of us quote 70s country music and some of us quote 90s Disney. Um, well, I walked in and Charlie, it was, the, it was the part in Lion King, if you've never seen it, Mufasa, the father, is talking to the son and he's explaining how, how the kingdom works, right? Everything the light touches is ours. And they're walking along and, you know, everybody has a part and the antelopes are like, you know, going through the field and, and Mufasa pretty much tells Simba, well, the antelopes are fine with us eating them because when we die, we become part of the soil, right? This whole idea of the circle of life. And as I sat there and I listened to this beautiful understanding of, of all the things that Mufasa was saying, I thought to myself, that's not my experience. And I don't know if it's yours or not, but it's not been my experience that when I look out into the world, even at creation itself, I think everything is just going exactly the way it should. It's not been my experience when I look at all those leaves in my yard and think, man, this is a lot of work. And I know there's a, a purpose for things, but even Genesis 3 says that thorns and thistles were part of the fall of humanity. So there's got to be, like I'm thinking about like armadillos, I'm, are they? You know, I don't know. But I do know that there are things in life that we experience, that we look at at creation and we say, I know that Mufasa has a cool voice, but this is not just all in order. Things are not the way that they were originally meant to be. And Paul's describing it to the Romans, and he's saying, listen, this is because of sin. And so what's the point that I'm trying to make? I just want you to know that suffering is a part of life. And it's a part of life because man is sinful. You've heard Neil say it a million times, we're sinful people living in a sinful world. We're a fallen people living in a fallen world. And we don't need to lose sight of that. We don't need to lose sight of the world that we live in because it influences how we view God. It influences how we view our identity. So Paul makes the connection that not only does creation, creation it says desires the day that we will be seen as the adopted children of God. Verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. What I need for us to understand is that when we're saved, there's both a present and a future element. There is the Spirit now that gives us a taste of eternity. That is why Paul says that the suffering of this present time isn't worth comparing with the glory that's, be, that's going to be revealed to us because there's something better coming. There's a future glory that's, that hope has been intrinsically placed within our hearts as the children of God. Have you ever looked around and thought, there's got to be something 
more than this. Have you ever found yourself thinking there's got to be something better than the world that we're living in at this point? I believe that is the, the, the hope that, that God has placed in our hearts as his children. When I think about the phrase incomparable, what this means is that there's one thing that is so much greater than the other that it would be offensive to the greater one if the two were compared. Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. All of you just celebrated Thanksgiving. I want you to imagine just for a second that you went to your mom or your grandma and said, you know, your mashed potatoes are pretty good, but I kind of like the box. Right? Or, you know, if you, you went to your, your aunt and said, you know, the macaroni and cheese is pretty good, but like Kraft has it going. Right? I think there would be a fence there because in the minds of many people, those two shouldn't be compared. Right? They're incomparable. It's offensive to one to even compare it to the other. Be like me comparing myself to Michael Jordan. That's an offense to him. Right? Look at me. I mean, come on. But here's the thing that Paul's getting to, and I want us to understand this. He's saying that it is offensive to glory to compare how great it will be to our suffering now. And so how is this connected to our identity? Because we must understand our suffering now in light of our eternal inheritance that we have because we're a child of God. We must view the suffering of this life through the lens of our identity as co-heirs with Christ. Our view of eternity must shape how we suffer, not the other way around. Revelation 21 gives us a little glimpse of what eternity is going to be like. And it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, and Mourning shall be no more, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is the hope that we have as the children of God. And so as I think about present times, and I think about my own life, even this week has been difficult. I have a wife who had the flu. I have a son who had some other type of sickness. And so we were in a house full of germs, trying to figure out how to do Thanksgiving, how to, how, to, how to make it through life, right? And I think a lot of times the problem that we have and that I have is that we want to ignore the fact that we suffer. The church in general has gotten to a place where we push back on the idea of suffering and we press forward and we, and we, we think that everything's just going to be fine if we can just ignore the suffering. But nowhere in the Bible does it call you to ignore the suffering of life. Oftentimes, it's in the suffering of life that you truly see the grace and the mercy of God in your life. Paul is not trying to put a shield over the eyes of the Romans and say, now that you're sons of God, everything was just going to be fine from now on. What he is saying is that you have hope even when it isn't. I think about 1 Thessalonians 4.13. 
where it says, I don't want you to grieve like those who have no hope. Paul doesn't say that you can't grieve. What he says is that you get to grieve with hope. 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast all your anxiety on God because he cares for you. It doesn't say that you're not going to have anxiety. It says you have a place to cast it. There's a lot of people out there who, who, who want you to believe that Christianity is somehow going to lead to this perfect life now. That is not the case, and it never was supposed to be the case. It is that we can make it through life now because of the hope that we have as sons and daughters of the Most High God. To consider our present state as the ultimate good that God has for us is to diminish the very greatness of God as Father. If we think that what we have now is what's the ultimate good that God has for us, we are missing entirely too much how great and almighty God is. We can look forward to the adoption of our bodies, the resurrection that will take place in the new heaven and the new earth. Our identity gives us the hope that we have for that. And lastly, there's a powerful help to God's children. So we have a new identity, an incomparable hope, and a powerful help. Verse 26, he says, In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. The reality of suffering and the embracing of such suffering brings out a truth that is incredibly difficult to accept, and this is it. Paul writes to a culture, right, which just like ours, embraces strength and dominance in every facet of life. But Paul says here that in the same way that hope sustains us, the Spirit helps us in our what? In our weakness. The Christian child of God must accept their inadequacy apart from the help of God through the Holy Spirit. This week, no matter how headstrong my son is, when he started getting a fever of 101 and 102, he quickly realized how weak he was and how much he needed his dad. I heard in my dreams last night, Dada, where are you? I'd heard it so much during the day that I thought it's the only word my child knows. But I think many times we as a church miss, not this church in particular, but the church in general, we miss this understanding of our need for the Father. A major issue prevalent in the church culture today is our unwillingness to be broken by our own sin. To see ourselves in light of our greatest needs. We view ourselves in such a light so rarely that we rarely recognize our need for help even from God himself. We smile through pain. We shrug off our sinfulness, we push down our doubts, and we move forward in the name of self-reliance. But here we see that Paul states that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And when I say weakness, I don't mean laziness. I don't mean wallowing in self-pity. I don't mean self-hating. That's not what I'm talking about here, and that's not what 
Paul's saying. What Paul is saying is that there's a place that you must get as a child where you recognize yourself as a child and you know that your father is greater than you. You know that you need him. And you know that in that need, he's going to provide the help that you need. When's the last time you just looked up at God and said, God, I need you in this moment? Before we push through ourselves and find a way ourselves and, you know, and, and reach down to the bottoms of our depths, of our abilities, maybe we should lay on our faces and ask God for help. Weakness in the Christian sense is more about our view of God than about the view of ourselves. Paul, once again, has first-hand experience in this. 2 Corinthians 12, he talks about the thorn in the flesh. And we have this famous line that it says. It says that, for I, when I am weak, then I am strong. What that brings about is reliance. Reliance on God. Reliance on the Father. Reliance on the power of the Holy Spirit. We must recognize that the more we ignore the weaknesses in our lives, the more we often miss the grace of God in our lives. There's been times in my life where it was only when God took me to a place of weakness that I truly understood how powerful he was. And so one specific example that, that Paul gives is in prayer. Anybody ever feel weak in prayer? Just me? No? Okay. I, I, I don't pray like I should, and when I pray, oftentimes it's incoherent at best. I think, you ever seen anybody ugly cry? That's how I am sometimes when I pray. I'm like, this isn't making any sense to God. <laughs> I got the snot and the, the crying and all that good stuff, right? But I think about this times of prayer when, you know, you're so overwhelmed by the flesh and so confused and so hurt and so saddened that you don't really know how to pray or what to pray for. In the battle of life, we often wonder, should we pray for strength in this trial or should we pray that the trial would end? Should I pray for patience or boldness in this area? What's... What's the prayer that needs to be prayed at this moment? And Paul says that in those times, I, just, I want you to get, if you don't get anything else, get this. In those times, the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The Spirit in our times of weakness and confusion, in the times where we don't know what, to, what we need or how to ask, He prays on our behalf. Here's your second Disney movie reference. In the original Aladdin, Aladdin's thrown into the sea. He's got his arms chained and his legs chained and he's blindfolded and he's thrown into the sea and somehow he gets his hands on the lamp and the genie pops out, you know, and Robin Williams is like, Aladdin, what do you want? And Aladdin at that point is passed out. He can't speak, he can't say. Well, the rule is that Aladdin has to ask for the wish, right? He has to ask, please save me, you know, please save my life. And the genie picks up Aladdin's head and lets go, and Aladdin's head just drops. And genie says, I'll take that as a yes. And he saves him, right? And he brings him out, and Aladdin's just so thankful that God did that. I mean, God, oh gosh. That genie did that. I'm getting ahead of myself. That the genie saved him in that moment. 
Now let's move on to the God factor in the spirit. On an even greater level, I want you to understand that there are times when you don't know what you need, that God as Father is so loving and so gracious that he searches your heart. He sends his spirit to pray on your behalf so that you will pray for what you really need. Isn't that incredible? Isn't it incredible as God's child that I don't even have to discern sometimes my own needs because he'll do it for me and he'll pray on my behalf. Just to imagine for a second if Aladdin would have come out of that water and said, I didn't ask for this. Sometimes I feel like that's the way that we treat God. He sends us what we need and we reject it as if he doesn't know what's best for us as our father. In our absolute weakness, the Father intercedes for us through the prayers of the Spirit on our behalf. The Spirit, who is God, knows the will of the Father, who is God, and prays on our behalf the prayer that we need. So what I want you to understand in your identity as God's child, as God's, chi- God, as God's child, his expectation of you is not that you be so strong that you can do it on your own. His expectation is not that you can, you know, Bryson, just push through. Just do it by yourself. Just go on. you You got it. The expectation is that we recognize our weakness in such a way that we surrender to the power and the and the the mercy and the grace of God as our as our Father. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your needs. And so he searches your heart and he provides. And so as we kind of close our time together, there's really big verses in 28 through 30 that we're not going to dig into. I mean, we could preach sermon after sermon on Romans chapter 8. But often verse uh, 28 is quoted, right? And it's kind of taken out of its context and brought up it says we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who've been called according to his purpose I want to include my only my own little amplified version there in all things Bryson's quote suffering included God works for the good to be transformed into Christ likeness of those who love him called according to his purpose which is to have a people of his own. When we look at that verse, Paul's not saying everything's just going to be a-okay. I know I just talked about suffering. I know I talked about creation. I know I talked about all those things, but forget all that. Read verse 28 and move on with your lives. Now, what he's saying is that in all things, suffering, prosperity at times, the good, the bad, the ugly, And all of those things, God works together supernaturally as God for the good of those who love him, who have called according to his purpose. Verse 29 and and 30 have often been called the chain of salvation, but I like to think of it this morning as the process of adoption. It says that he, for those God foreknew, right, he saw You know that God saw you in eternity past? He saw you. 
I mean, think about that for a minute. He saw you in your sinful state. He saw you in that place that nobody else saw you. He saw you in that time and in that moment. He, he foreknew. He saw you. And then it says he predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son. So he saw you. And then he put the plan of adoption in place. Don't you think if you saw yourself at your worst, would you have died for you? And then it says that he called. He initiated contact, right? Luke 15, we talked about that with the father and with the lady and her coin and with the sheep and the shepherd. He initiated contact. He called. He justified. He made right through Christ. He sent his own son to die on the cross so that you could have right relationship, that you could be adopted in. And also he glorified. He saved for eternity. Notice that that is already guaranteed. He glorified. The work of God in our adoption as God's children is a miraculous outpouring of his love. And so as we close, I I feel as if at times when I get done with these messages, I don't have a very good closing. So I'm going to go to somebody who does, J.I. Packer. He has a whole chapter on adoption. So if you have this book, go read it. Forget what I said. Read this, and it'll be really good. But he says this, and this, is what, this will be our closing, right? So when we get done with this, we'll pray, I promise. This is our closing. But I want you to read what he says about adoption. If I can find it, there it is. He says this, do I... As a Christian, understand myself? Do I know my own real identity? My own real destiny? I am a child of God. God is my Father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day nearer. My Savior is my brother. Every Christian is my brother too. Say it over and over to yourself, first thing in the morning, last thing at night, as you wait for the bus, any time when your mind is free and ask that you may be enabled to live as one who knows it is all utterly and completely true. For this is the Christian secret of a happy life? Yes, certainly, but we have something both higher and more profound to say. This is the Christian's secret of a Christian life. And of a God-honoring life. And these are the aspects of this situation that really matter. May this secret become fully yours and fully mine. When you think about who you are in Christ, do you say, I'm a child of God? To say that is not presumptuous, it's scriptural. To call yourself a child of God is not to elevate you to a status that you don't deserve. It's to remind yourself of who God has made you. Jesus came, he's coming back, and in this moment we have understanding that we are in our process of adoption as God's children. And there's hope in that. So when you leave here, ask yourself the question, who am I? And know that God says, through the Spirit, you are a child of God. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Lord, I am, I'm sorry for the times in these sermons and in these moments lord that i'm so inadequate lord i pray that through the fumbling of words and through the missteps that i have lord that you would speak 
fully and truthfully. And um, Lord, for each person in here, whether they are a Christian or, or, or not, Lord, I pray that they would see the beauty in this. Lord, I know that we desire so deeply for this type of affection, for this type of, of love, Lord, that you've bestowed on us through your Son. Lord, that you have made a way for somebody like me, so completely undeserving to be called a son, Lord, for me to have an inheritance with you, Lord, that you sustain us in this time of suffering, Lord, preparing us for a day that we will be with you for eternity. Lord, that your new creation, Lord, that we will dwell there and we will have new bodies, Lord, and that we will be present with you for all the days of our lives. Lord, don't allow us to, to miss our sin and our weakness, Lord. Allow us to, to cast that on you, Lord, to lay it down at your feet and to remember our desperate need for you every single day. Lord, I thank you for our church. I thank you for grace. Lord, I thank you for your son. In his name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing together now, and if you need to talk, or if you just want to come down, the altar is open for that. We're going to sing together, and uh, you come as we sing. and adults four to six-ish, I think, whenever it gets dark. <laughs> We're going to be down in Bethlehem 
So any students, we don't have stuff tonight, but if you want to come help get Bethlehem ready, that'd be great. Kids choir at 6. Um, they're preparing for a couple weeks from now and choir practice at 5 for adults. Um, I almost asked to sing my favorite song because it applied so much to the message, but I didn't want to throw any kinks in. So we're not going to do it, but I just want to remind you of how deep the Father's love. If you Just go listen to that song. It kind of tells the story of this morning, but it's one of my favorites, and uh, it's vast. The love of God is vast, and uh, don't, don't, lose the, don't lose your first love. Okay? So as you go through this Christmas season when you're in Walmart battling it out for those TVs, right? Don't forget, right, that you're, in a, you're a son of God, you're a daughter of God, and that is, that is who you are first and foremost. Well, now I feel like we need to sing the choir, the chorus of how deep the Father's love. We all think Miss Tammy had it pulled up ready. So we'll sing that as our benediction. I think. Yep. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son. To make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns his face away. As wounds which mar the chosen one. Bring many sons to glory. Have a great week.